I just remember that diving on the floor and and scratching people and pulling, tearing the jerseys and uh, just playing kind of like a wild man. And that stuck. It just stuck. And Dick Motta was the coach. He said, "Hey, I, I'm going down an alley. I like this guy with me." And so I tried to build on that. And so I made it. That's the way I made it. And back then there was not a lot of um, long-term contracts, so you had sure. to play in the off-season, work out, train, in order to make the team the following year. So it kept me humble, kept me honest, and kept me working. That was Elston Turner. I'm your host, Marnie Gellner, and this is Wolves Plus, presented by Aura. McLaughlin for Towns, and one for Cat with an exclamation point. Russell shows off the handle and the shot. We got his feelings hurt on this one. Shots of Kogi! May the force be with you! Coast to coast for Obi-Wan Okogi! All right, Elston. I don't even know if do you respond to Elston. We all call you E.T. Everybody calls you E.T. Well, when I when, when I was in trouble at home, that's what my okay. my dad, yeah, Elston. I knew it. it's E.T. for short, but trouble boy, Elston Howard. Even threw the middle name oh. in there. I knew I was I'd done something wrong. Has E.T. just been your nickname for since childhood? Yes, it has. Just been uh, um, a lot of people just ask me to spell my name when I say Elston. Well, can you spell it? Got tired of spelling it, and everybody just called me E.T. They can spell that. You can spell it. Hopefully they can. You are you have made a life out of basketball. You are immersed in basketball. But I had read that growing up, your sports idol was Muhammad Ali. Yeah, I love boxing. Love boxing. I, I like the, uh, the, uh, the competition part that you have sure. to <laughs> produce. Um, as well as, you know, I, I used to... Uh, take boxing workouts and incorporate it in my workout from the standpoint of uh, hand speed. I grew up with a, a, a speed bag. My, my, my dad had a speed bag in the house, so I'd always punch that and it helped me defensively, you know, to, for hand speed, mm -hmm. as well as footwork. Basketball is just getting your feet tangled and untangled. You know, how fast can you move from one situation to the next? And that was boxing. You know, boxing, you, know, you get in trouble, you got to get out of trouble. Sure. So I uh, grew to like that, as well as the, uh, you know, the, the flair that Ali had. Did you ever get into boxing enough where you thought about doing something competitively? Well, one time I, I did boxing workouts for Golden Gloves, but I never uh, competed. You know, I was always busy with uh, all sports. When the season changed, I changed with it. So when I was little, I, I, I played football, baseball, and ran track. So I didn't have time to box. And you, I wasn't that crazy. <laughs> oh, there's that, that, there's uh, that part that of it. You're from Knoxville, Tennessee, and your high school was Austin East High School. And you led that team, the Roadrunners, which is a fantastic nickname, okay. to the state title in 1977, which was the school's first state title. I did some research. That school only has three titles ever. 85 and 87 were the other two. So your 77 state championship, the first... And one of only three, that's got to be legend. Well, that, that makes it very special. Um, there's a, uh, a monument in front of the school made out of uh, brick and concrete with all the guys' names on it, which, you know, that, that makes it special, being the first to do it. Uh, but that school has had good teams every year. 
Really? I mean, every year, they just it's hard to make it to any championship and win it. Uh, compliments to the team that I had with me. You know, we had like 13, uh, well, 13 guys on the team, 11 seniors. So, oh, wow. Oh, yeah. So we had been seniors. together for a long time, and uh, it just came together that particular year. Uh, really, really, really good for our careers as individuals, but also the school, which is an inner city uh, school in Knoxville, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Knoxville must be a really important place to you, special place to you, because you go back there, you give back there. You still feel this connection to Knoxville? Well, I do. I do. When I was growing up, uh, I played basketball, as you know, but, but we never had pros to come back and, and uh, give us information. You know, all we had was watching teams on television, and then you go out to the park to the basketball courts yeah. and you try to reenact what you saw. Fundamentally not knowing you were doing things wrong because nobody was there to teach you. Um, and, and so it was a lot of guesswork. You had to reply, uh, well, depend on a lot of the local coaches who, you know, they knew basketball, but not, you know, I can't say that they were, they had NBA careers, you know, and we re- yeah, right. really were teaching you what the pros do. So I, I said to myself, if I ever made it, I was gonna come back and, and, and be available for kids and, and other coaches, uh, especially the kids, and, and, and where they can see me, touch me, feel me, get information. Look, this is how um, you do it correctly, fundamentally. So I started doing a basketball camp, and I've been doing it a long, long time. But uh, one of my mottos is, it doesn't matter what you do for a living, you can show somebody else how to do it. So that's why I, I uh, started coming back as well as visiting family and friends sure you know and you still do it you said you have that camp every year you don't you don't miss the summer you don't go every i have few. missed let's see it's been you're gonna make me add up the years i need a calculator to do that <laughs> 77 so going on 44 45 years i may have missed three oh, covid wow. everything shut down during covid certain things come up where you were unable to get back and unable to have the camp but out of 40, out of those, uh, 44, 45 years, I missed three or four. So I've been That's doing incredible. it a long time. And, and then, you know, it, it was more important. It was good to give back or, or come back, but better to give back. So I wanted to be available and, and do something, not just be there. And one of the ways the community has shown its thanks to you is that this, this past February, you had a street. Named oh, after where did you. you hear that? Oh, <laughs> you done on. your research. Elston Turner <laughs> Drive. That was uh, unbelievable. I was blown away by it. Um, I, I'm still blown away by it. You know, uh, it was right after the All Star break, so I was at the All Star festivities. So I left Cleveland and flew into Knoxville, and they had a, the mayor, city council people, all my friends, a lot of schoolmates. I mean, it was just on the street corner where the street is, just a big crowd of people. And, uh, you know, that touched me, it touched yeah. me. So, uh, and not only that it doesn't happen a lot, it doesn't happen almost ever when somebody's alive. Usually you're dead right. or passed on, right. then they'll name a street after you. So I was able to see it and, and, and you know, it was a, uh, just a special, unforgettable memory. And when you go home to Knoxville, you can drive down there and you can look up and I'm see. I'm gonna drive down there. I made sure I told everybody not to allow their dogs to TT on, on this side. <laughs> don't, pee, don't pee on this <laughs> side right here. 
Don't know what the speed limit is, but it's, it's right there. I mean, it's Martin Luther King, Harriet Tubman, and Elston Turner Drive right off of Harriet Tubman. Uh, I'm just blown away. Well, that, that's a collection of names. <laughs> that's a collection of names. Wow, yeah. that's impressive. You played your college ball at Ole Miss. Knoxville is the home of the Tennessee Volunteers. Right. Were you recruited? Did you have interest? Did you have a lot of orange in your closet? Was there consideration? I did not have a lot of orange in my closet. Um, at the time, I was a fan. Um, Bernard King, Ernie Grunfield, these were the names that of the, the, some of the stars that were going there. And then that's one of the places that we used to play in the summer. So we knew all of the basketball players because we played against them, mm -hmm. uh, even in high school. Uh, but as you mentioned earlier, we did win the state championship, and you know I got the MVP and all these accolades, but I did not get one phone call from the University of Tennessee. My home is uh, probably two miles from the university. Number one, it's a really? local a local call, not even a long distance call. So I'm getting in, I'm getting all these other schools that 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 were contacting me. And my local school just, they continue to uh, recruit in New York and Ohio and outside the local area for some reason. Hmm. So I said, okay. So I decided to go to Ole Miss for a couple of reasons. Number one, basically a football school. Basketball wasn't really big, but they really, really wanted me. So that was important that they wanted, you know, to go somewhere that, where they wanted you. And then the deciding factor is they were in the SEC, so I got to come back home in front of all my fans yeah. and play University Plan. of Tennessee. And I tried to <laughs> stick it to them every time. Did you have some good games? Oh, really good. Okay. Well, yeah. you, you left a mark at Ole Miss because you're still number one there in minutes played, fifth in points, fifth in rebounds. And you went to the, you won uh, or helped you helped your team win the first ever SEC tournament title and went to the NCAA tournament in 1981, first time ever. So you left a mark. I tried to, I appreciate that. It was, um, it took some growing, you know, we, we, weren't, we were not good at, at first, uh, but after four years of staying together and, and uh, sticking with it, we got better and better. And, and, you know, we ended up winning the SEC tournament championship mm -hmm. versus Dominique and Georgia. And, and we went to, uh, I think it was the school's first NCAA. I'm not yes, sure. Yeah. Appearance. Yes, it was, 81. Mm -hmm. 81. So all those things are, are history-making moments and that I'm proud of. You know, So yeah. to this day, I can go home and some of the people that remember how University of Tennessee passed on me still mention that. Really? Yes. They don't forget. They don't, they don't forget. forget in Knoxville. They don't forget in Knoxville. You were drafted into the NBA in 1981, a second-round draft pick by the Dallas Mavericks, 43rd overall pick. The right. Mavericks, that season, that was just their second season of existence. So how does a rookie trying to figure out the NBA join an NBA team that's trying to figure out the league? What was that like? Well, it was, um, um, it was a lot of heart and hustle because I didn't know what to expect, but I was there with uh, – three other rookies, well, four other rookies, but three that, one free agent rookie, but three players that got drafted, Marco Guire, Orlando Blackman, and Jay Vincent. So we all were rookies on that same uh, second year expansion team. So all I knew was that I was not going back home. <laughs> I didn't know if I was going to make it. I, that didn't even, I just knew I wasn't going back home and I was taught to play and compete 
at a certain level through college and in my high school and and um, I think I made it at some point talent is across the board kind of the same mm -hmm. and and what separates you is is you know what's in your heart and how hard you play and I just remember that diving on the floor and and scratching people and pulling tearing the jerseys and uh, just playing kind of like a wild man and that stuck it just stuck and Dick Motta was the coach. He said, hey, I, if I'm going down an alley, I'd like this guy with me. And so I tried to build on that. And so I made it. That's the way I made it. And back then, there was not a lot of um, long-term contracts. So you had sure. to play in the offseason, work yeah. out, mm -hmm. train, in order to make the team the following year. So it kept me humble, kept me honest, and kept me working. Yeah, you got to prove it every year. Every, every year, year, I had to prove it. You ended up playing for the Mavericks, Nuggets, and Bulls, eight seasons total in the NBA. I wanted to ask you about the 86-87 um, the season with Chicago. That was your first season in Chicago. It was Michael Jordan's third season with the Bulls. He nice. averaged 37.1 points per game for the season. That was his highest scoring season of his Hall of Fame career. Right. That was your first season with the Bulls. What was it like to watch him work and play and contribute and produce that one season? That was his <laughs> highest. Well, you know, everybody that was on the team would like to take part in him having that successful season. So we, uh, we guarded each other every day in practice. And speaking of the scratching and holding, I mean, he thought I was crazy because I was – that's just the way I played. And that's so how you guarded him? That's how I guarded him. I, I mean, you, you cannot – it's a job, and you can't. I, I, I did respect him, but I never let him feel it and see it when we were practicing. So we went, in and, and he came at me the same way. I, he made me a better defender. I would like to think I made him at least practice and and, and uh, a better offensive player. But the bottom line is, we we when I got to Chicago, I had good years in Denver. It was kind of a bad career move because me and him played the same position. Oh. <laughs> You can be up 25 points with three minutes left, and the crowd still want to see Michael. So yeah. I come in, I get the last four or five minutes, you know, ooh, let me see Michael. <laughs> so it wasn't good for my career, but I had a good time. I mean, we, we oh, man, you can charge admission for some of our practices because we, we, we would just go at each other and, and uh, competition-wise. But he's, we're in the same fraternity. He's a great guy. Mm. He... Uh, Unbelievable. The rules were different at the time. You know, he was, he has the total package. And uh, just one or two of the things that jumps out right away was how uh, the time that I was there is when the uh, Detroit Pistons were winning, the bad boys. Oh, yeah. And so Rick Mahorn, Lambeer, all these guys would just kind of foul Michael real hard, snatch him out of the air, and here come Charles Oakley over my shoulder, and here come up. So it's just a big brawl, man. It was, it was. Oh, like WWE Incredible. wrestling every time we played him. But he's a big-time talent and just as popular. Yeah. There is a really unique connection between you and Michael Jordan. And I want to show you a picture here in a second. There is, there is a Fleer card, a collector's card, that Wendy's Restaurants gave away. In 85, 86. Now, you were with the Nuggets right. at this time. And people, when they bought a combo meal at Wendy's, could get these Fleer cards. 
There were 12 in a set, and one of the cards is, I'm gonna slide this across to you. One of the cards is you and your Nuggets jersey. <laughs> MJ is guarding you. Yeah. You've, you've clearly passed him. He's there trailing the play. He's trying to get in. That, that card now, with the explosion in value of cards, yes. is up in the uh, $750 range. Really? That card. That card right there. Now, you know, uh, I've seen that photo before, and, and every time somebody show it to me, the story changes every time. I mean, I, 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 I left him right there, and I went and dunked on him. That's one story. Oh, yeah, that's, but, a, that's a good story. <laughs> no, um, it, it was, and, and it was just good photography. I mean, whoever took that picture, uh, it was a, a pick and roll, and I kind of crossed him over and ran him into the screen, and he, was, he had that signature tongue hanging out, you know, and, and somebody caught that. And so I have that same photo blown up in my game room. Do you really? <laughs> yes, I do. Do you have that card by chance? I do not have the card, Shoot. no. Apparently, cards, like collector's cards, especially in MJ's first few seasons in the NBA, are very rare. And yeah. that one is a promotional item. It had a little stub on the bottom that fans could fill out for prizes or like free Wendy's food. So that really? card, if you have it with that stub, is worth a mint. Well, I'm going to find it, and then I'm going to take it to Michael and get him to sign it. How much would that be worth? There you go. <laughs> there you go. And I will merely take a finder's feed. That is fine. Okay, you got it. <laughs> You, once your NBA career ended, you did play internationally, Spain, Italy, Greece. What kinds of life lessons, I mean, basketball is one thing, but when you live internationally like that, you must learn about food and culture and the world and things that you're experiencing that you never have experienced. If you would just put your overseas career in a nutshell, what kind of life experiences did it provide you? Well, just what you mentioned, number one, the food was fantastic in uh, Spain, Italy, and Greece. Uh, just the preparation, uh, how they, the people savior, I mean, they, they eat late, they savor over a meal, they're not rushing to do anything. I mean, first it's an appetizer, then it's a, a one course, then it's the next course. So you can be at, at dinner around 10 o'clock at night oh my. and get out of there at 11.30. So it's not in a hurry. Um, People are friendly. Uh, uh, um, Basketball-wise, you know, as a group, uh, everywhere I, I've been, they used to eat team pregame meals. You know, if the game was at seven, uh, especially in Italy, the the, the pregame would be somewhere around one, one o'clock, two o'clock, and the wine would be flowing. Oh, at a pregame before meal. the game. <laughs> oh, I had to get used to that. They passing wine around like it's fruit punch. And I said, okay, and we playing here in about four or five hours. So <laughs> those kind of things. But the people just loosen were you up. loosen you up. Loosen you up, and it's just what they do. Um, you know, the obvious, you really start missing home. Beds are shorter in hotels and little mm -hmm. things that you take for granted. Um, but, but the people are fantastic. So I... Uh, one of the best ways to learn the language is just to watch TV because they, you know, and watch it, watch them speaking in the language that, you know, you, you watch in, in Spain, a Spanish channel, and they yeah. speak no English. So I pick up the language quicker that way, but I, I had a ball. I had a blast. Do you still speak other uh, languages? I speak a little bit of Spanish. A little bit? Yeah. Do you pick up Italian at all? Yeah, similar to Spanish, you know, cuando la pala arriba aquí, what 
Uh, how do you want your tomatoes? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's close. When the ball arrives here, it's all basketball related. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. If, I, if I was out in, you know, at a party somewhere trying to talk to somebody, I'd have to go to uh, Google Translate. Sure. Okay. But well, you pick things know. up here. I pick things okay. up here and there, yes. Your assistant coaching career in the NBA started in the mid-90s, 96. You've been with Portland, Sacramento, Houston, Phoenix, Memphis, Sacramento again, Houston again, Minnesota. It, the life of an assistant coach in the NBA is a lot of a nomadic life. There, it, it's a lot of switching and changing and moving around. That's just, that is the NBA. How do you put roots down? How do you unpack boxes? How do you sort of establish yourself or identity or familiarity in a community when you know just because of the line of work you're in, probably isn't going to be a real long stint wherever you are? Right. Well, uh, for me, it was, it, it, it was fairly easy. Once I got a family, that was the tough part because we, uh, we had Dallas, Texas was home when I got my first coaching job. And so I would uh, stay in apartments wherever I, I, I was when I was coaching. But the fact that you had to pack up and move your family, that is, that is a little worrisome. Yes. And um, um, we stayed in Sacramento the longest, where, as far as my kids are concerned. Mm -hmm. And we were there like nine years, uh, six or seven, you know, before we had to move to Houston. And my son was a senior in high school when we got let go in Sacramento and got the job, Rick Adelman took me to Houston with him. Mm. I couldn't imagine leaving my high school year. He played basketball, he was popular, he, you know, he had a pretty good status, and now you have to leave your senior year. So he hated me for like, oh, oh he literally hated me for probably a month or two. Now he doesn't want to leave Houston, you know, <laughs> so it's just a matter of uh, transitioning. Uh, it was easy for me. Um, I knew that that went along with the, with the job mm -hmm. in terms of packing up, leaving. Um, some of the other things that come along with this profession, you know, uh, that will weigh on you more than the leaving part. Sometimes you, you win and still get let go. You know, those are the things that, you know, mm -hmm. that's, that's mind-boggling. Yeah. But you treat it, uh, you have to keep pushing. You, you treat it kind of like military. You know, you're here, you're there. And hopefully uh, my family, uh, you know, right now, they don't mind when your job dictates you have to go somewhere, pack up and you go. Gotta go. You have to go. Yeah. And probably everybody's career in here. I don't know if everybody's from Minnesota, <laughs> but you have to go where your job is. Yep. And uh, I just had that mentality and still have it today. There's so much that changes with the game from when you played to now. I mean, it's, it's immense change. Yet you are still a top of the game, highest level assistant coach. How have you continued through the mid-90s into 2000s, into 2010s? Now here we are, 2022. You still relate to 20-year-olds. Mm -hmm. They keep coming, and you keep reaching them. How do you continually relate to 20 year olds well if there was uh one thing that i that i had i had to de develop this but if there's one thing that i had to i could go back and take again in school would be psychology <laughs> because that is coaching now reaching psychology. players yes 
um, you know, the, the, the day of just tongue lashing and, and, you know, that used to be coaching. It's not yeah. coaching anymore. You have to kind of appeal to what's important to them mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, which is usually families, their kids. You know, somebody's depending on you to do the right thing. You know, you got to get results in a roundabout way now. Yeah. It's just a more polished way. So and you're like, how do I reach you? What's going to move you? Yes. How do I connect with you? Yes, as far as the players are, are yeah. concerned. You want to develop a relationship, and, and the better the relationship, you know, the, the more they'll respond to you. Uh, as far as the business itself, you know, uh, being a hard worker, uh, being committed to the person you're working for, you know, mm -hmm. has sure. kept me around. Um, and just, um, you know, trying to just do the right do the right thing work your butt off number one and I think I, I, I you know I, I was trained to do that just 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 work and and be committed and loyal to the people that you're working for and that has kept me around for a long time that's good not just in the NBA that that's a pretty good life that's in life yes I had read an interview that you did in 2014 where someone asked you what advice would you give to a student who wanted to get into coaching and you said my best advice would be to take a class in psychology and a class in <laughs> conflict resolution. Conflict resolution. You're going to find that in every locker room. Uh, that is true. During every game. That is true. Sometimes, multiple times a game. There's always conflict. One of the hardest things to do is to develop chemistry when you bring a bunch of guys together from wherever their yeah. the, the background is from and try to get them to be on the same page to win. Uh, there's going to be some conflict in there. You know, it's a lot of personal issues, and you can't blame them depending on where you come from. You know, I got to get a new contract, so I'm playing this way, or I have to do. And as a coach, you try to merge that, and you take the conflict, and, and you just, you know, look at both sides and try to ease ease it to where both sides just think they won. And uh, that's hard to do, but that was some advice. You did your research big time. I, I'm impressed. Well, you know. <laughs> 2014. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah. Psychology and conflict resolution, though. I mean, that that's. So it still it's, holds that, true today. You think today. coaching? Okay, it's X's and O's, and what do you know about defense, and how are we going to play the pick and roll? And you're like, ah, yes, right. Hang on, we got a couple other things here. As it doesn't matter, like the X's and O's are one thing. You have to know that as a coach, but none of that works unless the player puts a certain amount of energy and effort into it and that's when the psychology and you know and all yeah. the other things come into play you are a, for lack of a better term the defensive coordinator for the timberwolves or the key defensive coordinator and this defense has been incredible this season it's been the identity for a good part of this season just this timberwolves team this year for this defense to work what are the basic bottom line boil it down things that you have had to preach and convince this group to do that they've done well the preaching continues <laughs> that never ends. <laughs> that's daily yeah that's daily because sometimes uh you're rooted in bad fundamentals and so you try to uh, you, you try to correct those and it's not easy all the time but the main thing that we try to do here is is uh, we take the team's or the players strength and weaknesses and we have a bunch of uh, 
young guys, 20, 21, 22, mm. 23 right. babies who are long, God-given length, um, that can move. So our defense is predicated on energy, effort, covering ground, moving from A to B, trying to create uh, conflict and turnovers so we can score off of turnovers. Yeah. Um, sometimes it may not look like that because the season is so long and, and it's hard to be up to a certain energy level for 82 games. Yes. But for the most part, I think we've done that and we go out there and we fly around. So you take advantage of their youth. Um, I coached Houston Rockets a couple of years ago and I had Westbrook, James Harden, and not so young guys, so we were more in a half. Maybe a different kind of defense. It wasn't different flying style. around, no. We <laughs> wouldn't call that flying around, but we were solid. But it's but here you, you just take advantage of what the guys have to yeah, offer. You and that is personnel. you. Yes, man, that's it right there. I want to ask a couple of um, more personal personality things that I've I found in my research and I wanted you to either confirm them or expand on them. One of the things I found was that you played bass guitar. And the trumpet. And the trumpet. I was in the band in, in elementary, junior high, and high school. Uh, the, in high school, it was the jazz band and the marching band. Okay. Um, I stopped playing football my, my junior year in high school. And so I was out on the field marching in the marching band. So I blew a trumpet in the marching band and a bass guitar in the jazz band. So I love music. And to this day, um, I still, one of my hobbies, you know, I still play the bass guitar. Never was in a, a, a group or anything like a that. Garage band? No, none of that because my time is just so occupied, I, I can't yes. do it. So I, uh, but I love music, yeah. So where do you play it? If you still play bass guitar today, where, just in your house? At the house, yeah. At the, I don't have it here, but um, Houston is home and got a couple of them down there that I just. Okay, so uh, you just pick it up and. Pick it up. Get those blisters and and, and, and just play. And uh, I don't know if you have it in your research, but I also ride a motorcycle. Did you have that? Next question. <laughs> so I'm ahead. Love motorcycles. Oh boy, that's my pastime. And and uh, you know everybody has their things they like to do. Yeah. Well, so how like you have a fleet of them? You like to take them apart and rebuild them, or just ride them? No, ride them. Um, I have a uh, Borgette low blow chopper, which is very long, and a uh, trike. So I have a couple a of them. A trike. It's just a three-wheeler. That's okay. a, l a little bit safer. You know, you throw your wife on the back and... and I'm sorry. You place your wife on the... <laughs> That's the motorcycle term. You place, <laughs> place, gently she place. gently place, assist your <laughs> Assist my wife okay. up onto the back, and then you ride. Okay. But the, uh, the chopper is loud in one of those. And in Texas, you don't need a helmet. You just throw a bandana on, mm. and so you get to feel no difference in that and riding in a convertible. You get to feel yeah. the wind. Yeah. So your leather jacket. Oh, everything. Sunglasses. And, and people look at me like I'm crazy. Like, how, how do you do that? But um, my, my thrill days are over. You know, I'm not speeding and trying to turn corners at 80 miles an hour, but we do ride. We ride, ride, yeah. And it's, it's, Get out in the open road. It's fun. It's fun. Your wife, who's on the back, uh, Louise, is yeah. a very good singer and apparently has sung the national anthem before some NBA games. Correct? Yes, everywhere that I've gone. She's done it multiple times uh, before games. I remember uh, 
One time, she was back in the family room. This was in Sacramento, I believe. And so the singer that was scheduled to sing that night either didn't show up or got, had gotten sick or whatever. Yep. And they ran back there and they asked her to sing the national anthem, like, just like that. So she, uh, she, she grew up in the church singing in the choir, and that's just something she likes to do. Is, has, uh, has she done it in Minnesota? She's no, done the anthem uh, at Target Center? No. But after this interview, I think you're putting, I think the, we got her on the schedule. You're putting the pressure on her a little bit. <laughs> I can imagine, though, you're getting ready for a game, and that's a significant moment. It's a poignant, quiet moment, and then there's your wife. And her beautiful voice. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, you know, a little bit stressful for me. I'm out here. I hope she get all the words right. I hope she doesn't mess up. But, no, she's done it time and time again. She's done it at the NBA Summer League in okay. Las Vegas. Vegas yeah. She's done it at um, – she worked at a radio station. She's done it at to kick off the Race for the Cure. Uh, okay. You know, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah sure. she, she's, a, she's a veteran. She's the talent in the family. She is Got the real it. talent. She's Got the it. Real talent. Speaking of family, your son, Elston Jr., and his wife had twins. I want to say in the fall? Hey, Twin babies. Just a little in the fall. Okay. And these are your, so you have two children, two adult children. Right. Are these your first grandchildren? These are my first grandkids. Okay, yeah. so what is this like? What is it like to see your child have a child, and in this case, two children? Well, I'm still trying to process it. I was able to see them the last time we played Houston. They brought them by the hotel for about, an, I think I had an hour to spend with. Just, oh, just precious, you know, precious and beautiful. Um, I had all boys in my family, three older brothers. So I do have a daughter, mm-hmm. but two grandkids that are girls, I'm going to get me a Louisville slugger and just walk around with it and just... <laughs> just protect them. I got to protect them. That's, that's the first feeling you get, oh. that I have to protect these girls. And, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a proud grandpa. Yeah, this is... I mean, you got a lot of years of this next phase. They say that that grandparent phase is the glory one. Uh, best time of your life. Really? That's what they say, because you don't have to do the disciplining um, and you give them back to the parents. There you go. That's what I'm going to enjoy. Hold them for a little while, keep them just for just long enough, and come back and get them, please. There you go. Come back. I'm gonna drop, drop them right back off. But they're two, um, Milani and Olivia. So they're two beautiful, beautiful girls. Oh. Well, you got a lot of fun yeah. ahead of you. Thank you. Et, uh, this was fun. Uh-huh. I appreciate it. I know that uh, your time is tight, so. Thank you. It's been a joy getting to know you a little no, bit. Oh, I appreciate it. I appreciate you bringing my my career to life. Uh, the, the research is just uh, mind-boggling. I don't know where you got all that from, but all of it was just 100% accurate. Thank you for uh, allowing me to, you know, to put a, a spotlight on it, so yeah. to speak. Well, deservedly so. Thank you deservedly very much. Deservedly so. All right. Thank you for listening to Wolves Plus, presented by Aura.